This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. My next memory is I'm trapped underwater. I don't know which way's up. I'm getting thrown about. The only way I can kind of explain it is it's like being in a washing machine. The manager's words were along the lines of, fuck's sake, make sure you're both on site in the morning. I fell to my knees, again, full on panic attack, couldn't breathe. The doctor came out to me that day and he said, you've got PTSD, I'm going to get you some help. Most companies that I speak to will say safety is number one priority. And again, I'm like, it's not. You're a business, making money is your priority. Some companies, safety takes a backseat, it's just get it done. And that's where a lot of pressure comes on a lot of guys. A lot of the guys that I do deal with, is stress because of the pressure that they're under. I'm looking at sharing my story, the, the accident, the lessons learned, how we can change and be safer in the future. He said, Steve, I don't think we're going to want to do that. So it's not a difference of opinion, it's a purposeful cover-up. Whether it was on the principal contract side or whether it was the client whose site it was, somebody made that, that choice not to get me an ambulance. You shouldn't have gone in there. And it's like, well, yeah. Again, hindsight's great, isn't it? If you could change one thing right now, you could click your fingers and that would be sorted. But I think the one thing that we have to change, companies do still do, is reward sites for not having incidents. Hi Steve, welcome to the podcast, mate. How you doing? I'm all good, mate. I'm all good. How are you? Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, good. Really good. Especially good. now the weather's improved. It is, yes. <clears throat> it is much nicer. It's a bit late this year. I was, I was saying to my wife, actually, last month, but, well, so what month are we in now? May and June, from yeah. May. So April last year, I remember being out in the garden and it was scorching hot. Um, yeah, and and I was just like, wow. And then this year, it's it's only just started to warm up a little bit now, isn't it? So yeah, uh, it April, maybe May time. Can't remember, but yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, mate, you've got a very powerful story which I really want to get into. Um, so I think that's probably the best place to start off. So do you want to to kind of introduce yourself? Um, and then and then really just tell your story and um, I might interject, but ultimately well, I think the conversation will will lead off the back of that, mate. Yeah, no worries. Except as I'll jump in any time. So my name's Steve Kirby and I set up SK Life Coach UK uh, around four years ago. So my background's construction and demolition. I, I worked in demolition for eight years, starting at the age of 20 as a Side as a site labourer, and then I went on to obtain all my plant tickets, crush air loading, shovel, and moxie. Um, ended up in a 360, and then I left demolition after eight years, and I spent 12 years in construction as a 360 operator. Now, I'm 44 now. 12 years ago, I was working on a, a site close to home. I've been on that site for a number of years, and we was... The job we was on at that time, we were installing a fire hydrant system, a high-pressure fire hydrant system on a, a petrochemical company, a petrochemical site. Before the Christmas break, so throughout like throughout end of November, December, we dug out the trench, installed 60 metres of, of thermal insulated pipe, 600 mil, and everything was going really well. The job, everyone was working well as, as a gang. The, the job went well. Then we stopped for Christmas, had two weeks off. When we went back after the Christmas break, we were told that that 60 metres section of pipe had to be hydrostatic um, pressure tested 
before we could move on to the next dig the next section out. But my belief is they couldn't get anyone at that time. We've been so soon after the Christmas break to get someone, get a team in to come and test it. So they went through it with us. Um, none of us, I think one guy had, had a bit of experience or seen hydro testing done before. And they brought an agency guy in. And this agency guy had a, a streetworks card, which apparently gave him the competency to be able to do this hydro test. He said he'd done it many times before. So we went through the risk assessment, method statement. Everything seemed really, really simple. It's 600 mil pipe, 60 meters long. Fill it with water. Once it's full of water, put the compressor on and get it up to 28 bar of pressure. So we get on site. We do our own on-site risk assessment, slips, trips, access, egress, all that type of stuff. And we decided, right, we're good to go. Safe to carry on now. I was the, the digger driver. We had five other guys with us, ground workers, a standby man. And me being a typical digger driver, I, I had nothing to do until I could dig the next section out. So I got him a digger. It was fixed snow. It was freezing. It was it was a horrible day. I got him a digger, 10 eaters on, uh, and that was me. Just sat chilling. Um, and then I was watching the guys. They started the test, started pressurising, and at about three bar of pressure, uh, it it started leaking at the at the test plate. If you can imagine, like obviously a spigot end with a, a flange on, twenty four nuts and bolts holding that in. The, the spigot end apparently weighed in the region of four hundred and seventy kilograms, so it's a big chunk of steel. And it started leaking just near one of the bolts. So John, who had the streetworks card, who apparently was a competent guy, said, "Right, um, stop the compressor. Get in there, tighten up that that nut and bolt." So they stopped the compressor. Jordan and Anthony, two young 18-year-olds that we had working with us, really, really keen. She goes into the trench, she goes down the ladder. The trench is only about maybe six and a half foot deep. Gets into the trench. You've got one sat on the spigot end holding a spanner and one stood in front of it holding the other one to get the leverage to tighten up this, this nut and ball. The Titans couple up where the leaf was, jumps out. Turns the compressor back on. Uh, another, about an hour or so passes started leaking again at around five bar again same scenario John stops the compressor tells the young lads jump in tighten that up it then gets to around lunchtime we started this at like half eight in the morning got to lunchtime which was 12 12 30 and it started leaking at 10 bar now I'm sat in my machine and I, I just felt something went right you know, like getting back in, in this trench getting in and out tightening up is that really the way we do it should it be up to the pressure already should it take this long? So I stopped the job myself. I said, look, guys, you stop what you're doing a minute. Someone go back to the office and have a word with the manager and just say, look, explain what's going on and see what he says. So James, one of the guys, went back to the office, which was just five-minute drive on site, explained to the manager what, what was happening. That manager then went onto his computer and he went on to St. Gabin's website and manufactured the pipework and went on the instructions, basically, on how to do it. And it stated on there that as long as everything's put together correctly, it didn't need a thrust block and it could be tested up to 38 barrel pressure. Now we was going up to 28. So he said, Where, what are you at now? So was, James had said 10. He said, no, just go and carry on doing what you're doing. So James come back. He said, no, no, he said, it's all right. You can't go nowhere, carry on doing what you're doing. So the lads did, tied up at 10 bar. He then gets to two minutes past three in the afternoon. I remember... 
it started leaking at 18 bar and it, it was bang on to him this past three. So I looked at my watch and I thought, I can't believe this. We finished work at four or pack up at four o'clock and we still had another 10 bar to go. And I'm sat there thinking, I ain't working late tonight. This is not, I mean, this, this ain't happening. So I jumped out my machine. I was physically stronger than both of these young lads. I was bodybuilding. I was about 16 stone at the time. And I said, right, guys, give me that harness. I'm going to go into the trench. So Jordan's laughing, like, here then, fatty, you go and do it, because I used to call me fatty. So he's like, here, fatty, you get in, you do it. One of the other guys had passed me the spanners, but I passed him then back as I put on the harness. Gets the harness on, I goes down the ladder, I enters the trench. My digger bucket's kind of behind me, and there's a, a lav main running at eight bar as well, a lav water main, just literally touching my back in the space that I'm in. As I reached up for the spanners, because obviously I didn't take it, I forgot to take it. As I reached up for the spanners, the spigot end blew off at around 18 bar of pressure. Now, I was, I don't, I remember looking back now, I remember reaching up, but then my next memory is I'm trapped underwater. I don't know which way's up, I'm getting thrown about. The only way I can kind of explain it is it's like being in a washing machine. So I'm kind of getting thrown about and I thought I was in the local river. I thought I was in the Humber. I didn't even know I was at work. I didn't know where I was. And all I could think about was my family and my kids. I couldn't like tell them, praying, please, 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 I can't die. I cannot leave my kids. I was 32. And I I, I truly, did, I, as I said, I thought I was in a river. I, I thought, I didn't know I got there. I was confused. But I was praying to a God that I didn't even believe in. Please, please, please. I can't die. I need to, I need to get out, but I can't leave my kids. I was screaming for my mum. And then it, it felt like I was there forever. And then all of a sudden everything seemed to stop. And and then and what had happened, Jordan jumped in, pulled me out. And as he lifted me out of the water, um, I saw faces everywhere because people had heard a blast and come running over to that area of the site to see what happened. But apparently I don't remember if the blast was deafening. And they're all looking at me and screaming at me to, to breathe. Now, my face is a bit battered. Uh, uh, my lips have gone blue. I'm grey. Uh, and they're shouting, fatty, breathe, breathe. And I remember being stood there thinking, somebody please help me. I, I, I can't breathe. With that, Jordan picked me up. And somehow the trench had filled with water, obviously. So that made me a bit lighter. But he threw me out the trench, passed me to the nearest member of staff who then dragged me out. And as they kind of threw me, the water dislodged, I was able to get a breath. Now, physically, I was really, really lucky in a sense because if I hadn't reached for the spanners in the exact moment I did, then that pipe would have cut me in half. It, the, spigot had, the spigot ended, it my eight-ton digger bucket, and it moved the arm like two metres. So that's how much force was behind that spigot end. <laughs> It went underneath the lav main, which was running at eight bar. If it had fractured that, nobody would have got in there to get me out, get me out. And physically, my harness and my, my overalls had been blown clean off my shoulders. My boots was found around about 20 feet away in another part of site, so my boots had been blown clean off. But physically, my, arm, my arms had been hyperextended, so my, my tendons had overstretched in my elbows. I needed nine stitches in the back of my head. I was battered and bruised from head to toe. My feet had been overstretched. I'm guessing that's when my boots was kind of blown off. And 
I, I had pipe bedding stuck in my face, my neck, my chest, like shrapnel where what, like, what the pipe was sat on had just all blown at me. But physically, I was really, really lucky. Uh, like, uh, everyone who I spoke to, all the companies that I speak to who do this kind of work, will tell me and say, look, people don't survive this type of accident. Like, when it goes, it's it is fatal. But obviously, how, how I see it now, somebody was looking down on me that day. Mm. Um, but for me, again, physically, I can't emphasize enough on all. Like, I still get pain today, 12 years later. I can't walk too far without my feet hurting. I have trouble with my back. I've had surgery on my bicep where it had snapped, but not during the accident. But the, the consultant said, obviously, looking back through the medical report and, and what had happened on that day, that had contributed to, to why my bicep snapped. So I still do suffer physically today, but I am I am able to work out and live a normal life, which I know I'm really, really fortunate. I'm really, really lucky. The aches and pains I, pains I can deal with. Uh, but for me, it was mental. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I set up SK Life Coach UK, really, because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the incident and the accident and what went wrong, training, communication, competence. No, there's, there's 101 things that we can look into that incident and, and put right and, and other companies can learn from. But before this accident, I, I didn't believe in mental health. You didn't, I didn't really hear about anxiety and stuff like that. It was just depression we used to talk about 12 years ago. And my back, like, I was brought up on a, a council estate in Hull by just me and my mum and my sister for most of my, my young life. Like, my dad left when I was 10. So growing up, I believed I took on the role of being the man of the house. I had to be kind of grown up and tough from a young age. <laughs> You couldn't show emotion because if you showed emotion in that area and with anyone, you just got your head kicked in. Then as I got older, when I, my first big job really was demolition and working away Monday to Friday with a bunch of demolition guys, sat in pub every night, a lot of banter. Obviously, being the youngest at the time, you get a lot of stick and, and so on. But you, you, I got used to that environment and you... You, you didn't talk about personal things. If you had something going on, you, you dealt with it. Uh, mm. And and that I think that kind of toughened me up as, as a youngster going into work. Like my, my, my mindset at that time, um, I just, I didn't understand people who were struggling with mental health or depression. I used to say to them, look, you've got three weeks off work. Why? It's all in your head. You're just using it as an excuse. You can physically do your job. So why are you, why are you off? And then it was only when I, went through, I had the accident and I even the next day I, I turned to alcohol straight away to help me with the flashbacks and the shit, I was shaking, I was I was in a lot of pain and I started drinking and I started drinking onwards from, from literally that first day and my, I started believing that I should have died that day, it was my day to die I, I didn't see it at the time but I was getting more and more depressed I was angry. I was agitated. Harry, my youngest lad, was four at the time. He'd want to play. And like a few days ago, I was trapped underwater praying, please, 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 I can't leave my kids. And here I am at this point. He wants to play. And I'm, I'm, I physically can't anyhow because my arms and everything, I can't move. I 
for I was I, I needed physio like six weeks after the accident, and it was only then that I could start to start to use my body again, really. But he'd still want to come over and sit with me and stuff. And I'd physically push him away and say, "Go to your mum, go away." And then I'd realise I'd done that, and I'd go and sit in the bathroom and cry my eyes out, think, "What? What is wrong with me? What am I doing?" But I didn't understand it, so I couldn't get my head around it. It was just the way I was being. It was, as I said, I was, I was scared, I was anxious, I was, I was agitated, I was angry, and that just went on and on. Me and Katie argued a lot. I, I had no idea where my next wage was coming from because obviously I couldn't. I was off work. Um, I was. We argued. I was gambling. I was drinking daily, as I said. I was gambling money that I couldn't even afford to gamble. So I was like using credit cards and, and things what I knew I couldn't pay back. Uh, and I, I just sank into a really, really dark hole to the point where I, I just didn't want to be no more. And I, I, I had it in my head that that was my day to die and I cheated death. Death was coming for me. So why don't I just meet it halfway and, and do it myself? Yeah. Thankfully, luckily, luckily I, I didn't have the balls to do it. The only way I could think of... of ending my life really was when no one had found me, the kids weren't found me or anything, was local suicide spot here is the Humber Bridge and that went through my head a lot, a lot of times, just jumping off the bridge. But having been trapped underwater for 40 seconds and drowned in and experienced that, I I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I, I, didn't have, I didn't have the balls to do it. And then is it, Katie, isn't that fascinating that you had escaped death? But you, it was kind of like you were putting yourself on a journey to to go back to it in a way to in, in suicide. Yeah. It's kind of like subconsciously your brain had gone, "No, I'm supposed to be dead, dead." So I might as well just go and do it. That's that's yeah, scary. and that's, that's scary that's, in a way, isn't it? That, yeah, that's exactly where I was at. I I got it in my head. It was like that film, Final Destination, where the, the escape. Yeah, that's that's what death. I was thinking. Yeah, and 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 that's exactly how my mind worked. And I truly believed every time I sat and had flashbacks, I thought even the smell of water would trigger me. And as wow. soon as I smell it, I'd be back on back under there, screaming, shouting. Okay. Uh, I'd I'd be I'd have a panic attack. Some I'd never have a, I'd never had a panic attack in my life until after this. And then I was having panic attacks on a regular basis just by smells even as i said i didn't i don't remember a bang because I, I was knocked unconscious instantly mm. so I'd, I'd be knocked unconscious and then came to underwater but even like bangs or something going on outside which i wasn't expecting all of a sudden i had back underwater with the smells the bubbles the stones screaming literally for my kids and for my mom and in my mind it was like i didn't ever see that changing and I, in my mind, I truly believe that I was supposed to die. Yeah. So why, why am I here? You know, let's just do it. Yeah. And then me and Kate, me and Katie had a huge argument. And she said, uh, "This was after about twelve weeks of me constantly drinking, um, gambling. I mean, I, I was a mess. I was I'd put on a, a load of weight because I physically couldn't do anything. So again, self worth, self belief, everything had just vanished from me. I was." I've always been a really confident person, always worked out like since I was 16. And then all of a sudden, I've lost all that, that confidence, the the self-worth, everything just disappeared. And she she said, look, you need to ring a doctor and get help. Or if you if you're not gonna do that, you need to pack a bag and leave because we can't we can't live like this. Wow. And in that moment, 
in that moment, my ego and the way I was thinking, I was like, right, I, I'm going. And I, in my mind, I was going to go anyhow. I was going to die. So it was like, right, I'll, I'll go anyhow. And I started packing the bag. And as I'm packing the bag, all of a sudden, I had a big flashback again. And I'm trapped underwater praying to God, please, 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 I can't leave my kids. And here I am about to, what well, they're screaming at me, please, daddy, don't go, daddy, don't go. And here I am about to walk out on them. Oh, mate. So I, I fell to my knees Again, full-on panic attack, couldn't breathe, sweating, freezing, shaking. And Katie said, that's it, I'm ringing a doctor. And the doctor came out to me that day and he said, he said, Steve, he said, I'm not a psychologist, but you've got PTSD, anxiety, depression. He said, I'm so going to get you some help. At this point, you've you've not... I, 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 want, to, I want to break this into chunks. So the conversation yeah. of the response of... The, the immediate response from the company and so on. I want to uh, come back to that. But yeah. uh, from, from the point of incident to you having this panic attack, potentially leaving your family, you'd had no mental health support or consultation no. with... Okay, okay, right. No. So this is the first no. point where somebody said to you, I think you've got PTSD, you need to talk yeah. to us. Wow. Yeah, and and I, is, I, what's, what's the timeline like here, Steve? How long so has it been? Like I said, this was around about 12 weeks after the incident. Right, okay. So, and the doctor came out and said PTSD anxiety, and I started laughing. And I said, guys like me don't get PTSD. I've heard of PTSD. I didn't know really what it was, but for me, it was something you got in the forces, in mm. Iraq, in Afghanistan, the knowledge, mm. seen. And he said, no, he said, Steve, you have, he said, it's PTSD. You've gone through a really traumatic experience. Mm. I'm going to get you the help. And then, the next day, I got an appointment at Victoria House in Hull, which is a, a local mental health hospital. And I went, My, I think my dad took me that day, and I sat with a lady. I still, physically, I, I couldn't drive or anything at that point because my feet, my, my, arm, my arms, was. I was having cortisol injections in my elbows in order to just be able to move my elbows. Wow. And, and I sat with a lady and I explained everything, the accident, how I was feeling, the drinking, the gambling, what I'd gone through. And she just sat there and said, Steve, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. And I, I was like, pardon? She said, I, I can't help you. I'm not qualified enough. And yeah. with with that, my world just kind of fell apart again. You know what I mean, I thought, well, if you can't help me, nobody can help me. So I maybe I am supposed to be here. Maybe I was. that was my day. And she said, look, We'll be back in touch. She said, I will find you somebody else who we could talk to. She said, don't panic and, and we'll be in touch soon. Now, on the, on the way home, I'd already fallen out with family over the last 12 weeks. I'd fallen out with my mum and my sister because I wanted alcohol. Katie wouldn't get me it. I physically couldn't go and get it. And so I'd say to my mum, will you bring me a bottle of vodka? Will you bring me a crate of, of lager? And she'd be like, no, no, Katie said, you're drinking too much. And then I'd be like, well, if you're not going to bring me it, don't come and see the boys because you're not seeing them. Don't ring them. Don't talk to them. If, if you're not going to help me when I need help, then I don't need you in my life. So I'd fallen out with not me. And then I, on the way home from, from that mental health hospital, I, I got my dad to stop at a shop. And I went in and grabbed the biggest bottle of vodka that I could find. Um, went and and what was what was the alcohol doing was it helping you escape the reality of the situation or were you trying to escape the flashbacks I, or both or i was i was trying to escape everything like it started the next 
I started drinking the next day after the accident, and I'll really? come back to like I, I signed myself out of hospital once I realised um, I, I I didn't break any bones. So obviously I had a small fracture in my face, uh, and but that was that was it as far as breakages or bones. I, as I said, stitches and whatever else, and limbs hyperextended, but. They wanted to keep me in because I'd been unconscious and I, I just wanted to get home to my kids. That first night when I got home after around midnight, I had two flashbacks. The first time I tried going to sleep, I was back there again underwater, like trapped. Calmed down an hour or so later, it happened again. So for me, the, the next day, in order to kind of take the edge off, I just thought I'll have a couple of years mm. because that's just how I've always... It's what I've always been around. If I mean, if you've had a stressful day, have a couple of beers. If something's going yeah. on, have a couple of beers. So something I thought, going have, well, have a couple. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's beers is so, just always the answer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the next day, I, I thought I'll have a couple of beers. Then a couple wow. of beers probably led to whatever was in the fridge. So like eight, maybe eight cans of Stella or something was in there still for Christmas. Yeah. The next day, it was any spirits that we had from Christmas, what we had left. Wow. Within a, a few, within a week, there was nothing left. So that's when I was falling out with family and saying, "Like you need to bring me it. I need it." And then I just, I just felt it. it to be honest, looking back now, it did nothing, oh, nothing for me other than made me feel worse. But sat there, just drinking to the point I passed out. I, I, I won't remember having flashbacks in my sleep or anything. You know, like, cause yeah. I like, because I love it. And that so part of it that, as well was just just being able to sleep. As yeah, well, like you block, couldn't wow just okay. block just block it out and sleep and Fuck. but then obviously then you feel absolutely crap the next day mm. and then because I was in that low mood caused through the alcohol as well I was trapped in that circle so yeah I'd, I'd start I, I couldn't see no positives so I'd start drinking again to mm. kind of get through that day and then wow. and I'd gone on with this bottle of vodka and when I got in I literally I downed it and I downed it, hoping that I wasn't going to wake up after this woman said there was, she couldn't help. It was like, really, I don't know. But again, I woke up the following day, um, Katie having a go at me, Harry screaming, my head's all over the place, my head's pounding, I'm, I've got the worst hangover in the world, I'm, I'm aching everywhere. And then I got a, a message saying, can you come back to Victoria House? Um, I went back, got again, got a lift from my dad. And this lady said, right, I've heard everything about it. Can I hear it in your words? And we'll we'll see where we'll go from here. And she was, to be fair, she was brilliant in, in what she taught me in that, that point. But the thing is, with, with therapy, and that's why I went into coaching, the thing is with therapy, even though I was there for that accident, she wanted to go back to my childhood as far back as I could remember yeah. from, the day, from that first day. Yeah. And I was like, well... I've got no problems with my childhood. As she said, everything's triggered. The way you respond now is triggered from when you was a kid. Yeah. And again, being like my dad left when I was about 10 and there was a lot of domestic violence and all sorts within between my mum and dad. And I then she got me reliving all that, which even to the day, even now looking back, I didn't need that. I, I've got a good relationship with my dad. I've got a good relationship with my mom. They even talked to each other. That was a long, long time ago, and that that wasn't triggering anything. My trigger was that that incident, that accident, mm. and that's what kind of changed my world around. But 
and then as soon as my hour was up, I, I had an hour session on a Tuesday and a Thursday. So no matter where I was at emotionally, she'd be like, oh, Steve, that's it. Time's up. See you again Thursday. And I used to walk out of there feeling worse than when I walked in. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was, mm. it, the situation, looking back now, it was strange how, how it worked. But after the three months, when my, my quarter was up through the NHS, she she said she, I wouldn't take antidepressants because, again, because of the stigma at the time and it, once you get on them, you don't get off them. And I was like, no, no, I don't want them. So I wouldn't take them. And she said, right, here's a prescription for, to fall back on. And she said, Steve, look, you, you've learned a lot. You're an intelligent kid. You've taught me some stuff. She said, Why, when you go away from here, she said, Go and learn about the man. Go and learn about yourself. Go and learn to understand psychology and, and mental health. And I, my intention, I got in my car. My intention was to go and park my car up and go to the pub and get wrecked. So that was that was where I was at once I'd left. Really? I thought, Even I, after I, three months? Of yeah. I, 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 I still want in a good place. I understood flight, flight, uh, flight, fright and freeze. So I understood why my body was responding the way it was responding. Yeah. But... I was still triggering, so certain things would still make me start shaking, and and I just kept saying to myself, "Stop being, stop being a dick." You know what I mean, I, my self talk was always putting myself down, and and yeah. I was going to go and get pissed, but then some inside me just said, "Go home and go on YouTube, that really? go listen to her," and I did. I went home and I went on YouTube. I downloaded Audible. First book I downloaded was a book called Free Magic Words." And I started reading, not Audible, sorry, Kindle. And I started reading that that very night. And something just changed in my mind. And I, I started to understand what she was, what she said to me in the past. I started to understand that we live in our own imagination. If you're imagining the worst, then that's what it is. If you're imagining the best, then that's what it is. Yeah. And I started to believe that if I, if I hadn't gone in that trench that day, then Anthony or Jordan could be dead, or both of them, because there was both mm-hmm. in there, and one of them threw me there for two bottles. So if I hadn't gone in that trench, then somebody else had died. Whereas because I went in, nobody died. I'm still here, so I, it was meant to happen. And that's so when you I kind of thinking. repositioned it in your head, in that yeah, I kind of I reframed it a little bit, and, yeah. and look, looked at it differently. And and that's what I've learned over the years. It doesn't matter what situation we're in you've got the ability to reframe certain scenarios, whatever you've gone through. So if you've gone through a traumatic event, like I studied NLP for a long time and self-hypnosis. And what I learned through that was even though, like when something triggered, I was back underwater screaming for my life and praying to a God, please, 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 I can't die. And I was really, really scared. I was really frightened. I started kind of meditating, if you like, getting myself in a relaxed state and putting myself back into there in my own mind. Wow. And But then I'd, I'd imagine that I'm, I was peaceful. I wasn't scared. I, I was safe. And I know that I'm going to come out of it in the end. Wow. You know I mean? So I was putting myself back then, but telling myself I've come out of it. And then literally that stopped the triggers, that doing that. And re, even though the brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So that's yeah. why sometimes, I mean, we imagine certain scenarios we get anxious that's where anxiety comes from we keep going over memories of the past we get depressed but if you can even though like i changed it so i wasn't scared while i was underwater i was i was shit myself don't i was the way 
the scariest place I've ever been in my life. But sat in a relaxed state and putting myself back into that trauma and rethinking it and imagining I'm safe, I'm well, I know that I come out of it. It it stopped it stopped the flashbacks, it stops trigger it, it stops all the triggers. In, and that's <clears throat> go on. No, cover, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say that. That's, that's, sorry. <laughs> you that, go, you that, go, you go. But that, that's that's kind of what led me to setting up SK Life Coach UK. So for 12 years ago that happened. That had been like literally nearly a year later after I'd gone through everything and then got into therapy after after 12 weeks. Then had three months of therapy. Then started reading and studying. And then for, I'd say for 10 years, well, before I set up SK Life Coach UK, for a good seven years, I'd read hundreds of books, listened to hundreds of audibles, done courses in hypnotherapy and NLP, CBT therapy. But at that time, I had no intention of setting up a business. I was just doing it for myself, yeah. for my own mind, to just yeah. keep evolving, to keep understanding. But then I found myself helping friends and fr- friends and family who were struggling with certain things, whether it be love or confidence or or anything and i'd sit with them and talk to them and within a few days there was there was a different person that that, that confidence back i was doing like some hypnotherapy some people think hypnotherapy i'm going to go to sleep and you're going to go to sleep and i'm going to try and change what you think but it doesn't work like that it's it's more sat getting relaxed and talking you through scenarios yeah and it's like if if even my uncle my uncle my uncle's a really confident guy but he works within the caravan industry and he's been asked to be supervised there un- like God knows how many times, loads of times throughout the years. And he wouldn't ever do it because he didn't have the confidence. Even though he's a confident person and he, he knows his job, he was like, no, no, I don't do it. And he, he was telling me, so I said, so why don't you go ahead and do it? And he was like, because I ain't got the confidence. So I was like, you have. You're just telling yourself what you want. And then I used some hypnotherapy and got him to relax and got him to imagine himself being really confident. Two days later, he, he went and asked for the supervisor job, and he's now supervisor. <laughs> so awesome. It's, it, awesome. it's just how it's it's how we think. I mean, it's the way we we put yeah. things in our own imagination. I want to <clears throat> I want to do a really dickhead thing and put you try and like get back into that that moment just before it 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 kind of it happens. So you're kind of you're sitting in your cab. Yeah. And it's it's nearly home time, and you know whatever we 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 you've already you, you probably got, I've got to pick the kids up or I've got to, go to the pub tonight or I've got training I've got gym I've got whatever I'm taking the miss out for dinner, or it's just a normal day and I'm going home watch Game of Thrones or whatever. Like yeah, yeah. you get out of that cab and you you go down the trench. Kind of did you you feel safe in that moment? Do you have any inkling or any feeling in your mind at all that like before? When James had gone back to the office at, when it was leaking at 10 bar, I didn't feel that. Something felt wrong. Something didn't feel right. That's when I stopped the job and I said, look, guys, just somebody go another way. Now, yeah, there was it, it felt strange, and that's why I stopped. Once he came back and he said, it can't go anywhere, the way it's designed, it, it don't come off. You don't need a, um, you don't need a thrust block or anything. Don't come off. So once once I heard that, it was like, well, you can't go nowhere. So I, as, as I entered that trench, I felt totally safe. In my mind, right. it, it was Jim I was going to that night. 
I could have gone to the gym at any time, but there was just no way I wanted to do it any other time. I didn't want to work there. Yeah. And it was a case of, in my mind, all 24 nuts and bolts needed tightening because they was only tightening a couple where it was leaking and then getting out. And then it was leaking in a different place. And then there was getting in tightening it, uh, like literally moving around the, the flange. So in my mind, it was like, right, just jump in, tighten up all 24 and get out and it'll get straight to pressure. And yeah, as I entered the trench, reached up, it blew in that moment. So, but you've well, yeah, literally gone from like normal day to like essentially a a fatal situation in yeah, in like and, in in seconds. And and that's that's why I share the story because I would I, I I thought I was competent. Mm. The the experience that I had in demolition and in construction. At 32 years of age, I'd done everything. You know, I'd, I'd demolished buildings myself in a high reach. I'd, I'd done everything you could think of within construction with a 360 with regards to whether it was digging trenches, digging footings, digging holes, levelling out, loading wagons. There was nothing. It was just work. And like all this was, was the method statement was really, really simple. It was all, but even the risk assessment looking back now was just a generic risk assessment, which had been amended slightly for the job. The method statement, fill the land with water, had valves at both ends, once there's water coming out the valves, close the valves, put the compressor on, get it up to, up to 28 bar. It was it was so simple. It wasn't it want a difficult job. So therefore, you don't, I didn't overthink it. I mean, I didn't think anything. If I'd have known at that time what one bar of pressure was capable of, then I'd have probably thought twice let alone 18. If I'd known there was 51 ton pushing against that plate, I probably wouldn't have gone near it. But I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't competent. I didn't have that. It's knowledge. easy to say with hindsight as well, isn't it? Like, yeah, I'm curious to ask you actually, like, with, with hindsight, with all of this that's happened, right? You mentioned Ram's risk assessment method statement a couple of times. Um, you, you mentioned the word generic there as well. Not not much has changed, if I'm honest. Like the majority of no, them no. are, are generic. Like when you look at I don't know how much engagement you have with construction now, but like when you know, if you were to go on a construction site now, I, I'm gonna stab a guess, you'd probably see the very exact same weaknesses in the risk management approach to what was existing on the day of your incident. How how does yeah. that how does that make you feel? It's Angry a lot of the time, especially some some sites I'll turn up at and they let me have a walk around. And I'm looking and I'm like, why is that the way it is? Why is this like that? You could do that in a better way. And yeah. some of them can be like multi-million pound companies, not like small local businesses. And even just stuff like having had barriers around, like scaffold barriers rather than little aluminium panels. You know, small things. And it's like... Why is that not happening? You know, why is that not within your budget for mm. for the scope of the job? You know, it's and I, I, most companies that I speak to will say a lot of them say safety is number one priority, and I'll again I'll be like it's not. You're a business making money is your priority. You know, to pay the staff, get the job done, and gain a profit. Yeah, safety safety's got to be on par with that. You know what I mean, you can't. Some companies safety takes a backseat. It's just get it done. No matter what, any way you can get get this contract finished. Mm. But 
And that's where a lot of pressure comes on a lot of guys. It's but like that's what I, a lot of the guys that I do deal with is stress because of the pressure that they're under to get projects finished by a certain yeah. time. And through no fault of their own, they either haven't got the storage space or materials on site or I mean there's every day they're facing challenges which is setting them back. But then from above, from the top, they're not seeing that. They're not counting all these challenges, what they're going through as supervisors or team leaders or whatever. And then they're getting it in the net because they're behind on a job. And it's it, it's all got to be managed differently. It's got to be, I mean, you've, you've got to account for everything. I know it's difficult because budget bars, money, it's, there's a lot involved, isn't there? But, but when it comes to safety, it's it, it's a job. I mean, it's, you can't put people at risk, mm. especially it's twenty twenty three. I mean, it, we, we all know we've had got, got how many fatalities every year. I mean, on average, if you average it out in the UK, it's about hundred and fifty. Oh, there, yeah. there about. I think hundred and thirty to hundred and forty was the last calculation. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So and that, and that's every year. Yeah, that that and, constru- be- and construction is the main is the main chunk of that hundred and hundred thirty yeah. hundred boy. And then you've got suicide, which is biggest killer in construction. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and, and we we struggle to attach the chain of of workplace stress to to yeah. the suicide. So yeah, to why that's happening, and yeah. there's got to be a lot more done. I feel within, and it's like mental health. I read a post of John LinkedIn and. Yeah, you can put somebody through a two-day mental health first aid course, but then that's not enough as a company. No one's saying, oh, we've got a mental health first aid. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of people won't speak to them anyhow mm. because they won't be in the same company. If they're drinking mm. so much or they've got, they're being violent or they're taking drugs or something like that, due to the stress that they're under to cope, like, like I drank to cope, then they're not going to speak to somebody within the company. They're going to say, well, did you have a drink last night? You, you can't be on site. You know what I mean, get get off, get off site. You, you can't be here. Yeah, and that's why the what, and that's why the the what you was a mental first aided. That's why without me trying to get myself wet, you need someone like myself from outside a company for for the for the guys who they can relate to and talk to, mm. and then you'll get it out of them. Do you know what I mean? It's when I do my presentation, the, the amount of time every time I do it, there's, there's guys waiting to talk to me afterwards. Because of their own issue with what's talk. going on, or whether it's safety or whether it's mental health, and it's like, and have you not spoke to the mental health first aiders? And they're like, no, 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 I have to stop. I mean, some come, some people do use them for kind of minor things or stress and stuff like that. But anything kind of more serious, they, they just don't want to talk to them because the work within the same within the same business. So yeah. think, things do have to change. I think mental health first aiders. It needs to be looked at a bit more. They're not therapists or coaches or they've done a two-day course. Mm. And, and they're, they're there to sandpost people, basically, to listen to women, to sandpost them. And that's what that course yeah. is about. Yeah, It's about seeing the sounds, being able to approach somebody and sandpost them to the right place. Yeah. But companies, need, companies do need to be doing more than that. They need to be... They, they need to have a company or a therapist or someone who they can then send that person to after they've been to a first aid. Mm. And, yeah. and as far as safety, the, again, I think there has to be more laws 
because um, as we can go into with, with my accident, the HSE never even got to investigate that one. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really actually quite oh, fucking dogs just go mad. One second, he'll <laughs> shut up in a sec. There we go. Um, I'm really keen to explore that actually. So can you can you take me through, take us all through what happened after the incident, how the company responded, how, how the team responded on the day, yeah. then how the how like the days after, and then and then as you just alluded to, the, the conversations that you have with the HSE as well. Yeah, so as I explained when the accident happened, I was Jordan pulled me out of the trench. Um, Arnis had been blown off, overall I was being blown off, I was battered, I was bruised. He threw me out the trench, I was able to get my breath. They, they sat me on the tracks of my digger to start with, and they was trying to lay me down, and I was in and out of consciousness, I was a big guy at the time. So they got me, they laid me down, and it took about 15 minutes for the, the client at their own on-site ambulance. So the ambulance eventually got through to... I mean, what was stopping everyone getting through to the emergency team was they was all on the same radios on the same channel and everyone was pressing the button and shouting for help at the same time and blocking each other out. Right, yeah. And and it took it took so the, the lesson from that is emergency just have one open channel. So I mean rather than everyone being on the same channel. But eventually they got through and the, the on site ambulance came out to me. And, and initially, I don't know if Theft just thought I'd fallen in the trenches or not, because he was just real blase. I was kind of still, according to the guys, I was in and out of consciousness. But what I remember, like, he came up to me and he was like, uh, do you need a, an ambulance? And I was like, I looked at him and I just, you know, he turned up in an ambulance and it was, I didn't know, I don't know what I was thinking, but he they got me, got me onto, onto a bed, got me into the ambulance. Put a, a gauge on me head to stop the bleeding because it said I had a big, big gash in the back of my skull. And then they had they stripped me naked because I would it, it was fixed snow, it was icy, and I'd been trapped in ice cold water for like forty seconds. The guys had already stripped all my top half off and put jackets on me to keep me warm. When I got in the ambulance, they stripped everything off. Then they realised I didn't have no blankets or no clothes to cover me back in. So all what they had on the side in the ambulance was a, a, a see-through hazmat suit, paper suit. So he stuck me in this paper suit and put a, a wet coat on top. So I literally sat there completely naked in a wet coat. Okay. It, it then turned on the sirens and we went in blue flashing lights. We popped back to the medical centre first, just to book to the medical centre. And then they got me back in the ambulance. They found me somebody's trainers, which because my feet had been battered, I couldn't get any on, couldn't get on. So they got me, I think there was about five sizes too big. Um, absolutely stank. I don't know where they came from, but they got, got me some trainers. And then got me back in the, ambu in the ambulance. And I thought I was on my way to hospital. And we was in the ambulance for about a few minutes. And they opened the doors. And I was in the car park. And... There was a car park next to us, which was one of my friends, James, who was like a supervisor. And he said, right, take him to the nearest medical centre to get stitches. So the the ambulance had took, took me into the car park. He then took me 10-minute drive to the medical centre on the estate. 
Nobody had rang through to let them know that I was on my way. Uh, so when I got there, it was reception was quite busy. The guy on reception had no idea who I was or what had happened. And he was like, what's happening? So James said, oh, he's been in an accident. He needs stitches. So he said, oh, just go and take a seat. But obviously we didn't know about all my other injuries at that point. Like my, arm, <laughs> my arm's hyperextended, my feet. Right. They didn't really, all the shrapnel, shrap, like the pipe bedding in me. And I was sat there for about half an hour until it was my turn, until the nurse came. And then Fucking the nurse... And, and at this point, sorry, this is like a bit inappropriate, but are you still in a see-through hazmat suit at this point? I, I, I'm in a see-through paper suit, completely see-through. Like You get like the white ones and you get the clear ones. It was the yeah. clear one with a white coat. So I'm, again, just <laughs> sat there. Hell. And then the nurse came through and she was like, Steve Kirby. So James, yeah, yeah, he's here. So she came over, she took one look at me and she said, what the fuck are you doing here? That was it. the nurse's exact words. She said, you look like you've been beat up by 20 men. She said, what are you doing here? So I said, um, I said, there's a company not ran through. She said, there's been an accident at work. So she's like, no, nothing. So she took, uh, checked all my blood pressure and as you can imagine, everything's through the roof. She said, right, you need to be at a world infirmary now. You need to be at a &E. She said, I'm going to bring you an ambulance. So James said to her, Don't, by, by the time an ambulance gets here, which was like 20 minutes away from the hospital, he said, I can have him there. He said, so I'll just take him. So she said, right, do that then, but get him there now. She said, I'm going to ring through and let you know that you're on the way. We set off and we hit traffic. I was in and out of country, like, again, falling asleep, and he kept saying to me, Wait, Steve, wake up. Don't be dying on me. He's panicking and stressing. And then his phone went, and like, I didn't know at the time. Like, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but what he's told me afterwards, it was the shift site manager from the, from the site. And the shift site manager said, right, what's going on? So he said, we've been to the medical centre. I've, I've been told I have to take him to A&E. He's, he's in a bad way. He, he can't, they can't help him. The, the manager's words were along the lines of, fuck's sake, make sure you're both on site in the morning. Put the phone down. So James is laughing, like saying, no bed, and as we're driving off. We get to the hospital. He helps me in because I can't physically walk. And then they rush me straight through. And then I, the accident happened just after three o'clock. Like I said, it was two minutes past three when I decided to get out that digger. And I got to a Hullworth infirmary for about half past six. So it was a good while. I mean, afterwards, with an head injury, they wanted to, they did all the scans, checked everything, stitched me up, got the pipe bedding out of me, and then they was looking for a bed. They wanted to obviously keep me in because it was, I'd been unconscious. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going home to my kids. All I could think about while I was there was, was my kids, and I want to go home to my kids. I, I'll be fine. So they wouldn't let me go to start with, and I ended up discharging myself and signing myself out. Again, didn't sleep that night once I got home because flashbacks started. But the next morning, there was a, a knock at the door about 8 o'clock in the morning, and Katie said, who's that? I said, I, I don't know. So she went to the door, and it was a colleague from work. And he said, right, Steve. He said, um, how are you doing? I said, well, yeah, not, not great. He said, right, I've got to take you on site. I said, really? I can't go to work. I, I couldn't walk. My feet was battered. My legs. If you imagine the pressure of the water all hitting me, oh, God. My, my legs and my arms and everything was just black and blue. They was battered. And he was like, he said, I need I need to take you. You've got to give a statement. 
So he helped me into the works minibus and took me back, took me to site. Made sure I swiped in for the turnstile. Like he scanned it and then did the turnstile. We drove in, and then I saw the the direct the, the managing director of the client print or the principal contractor. Sorry, that we was working for. And he was like, "God, Steve, you look like shit." I said, "Yeah, I feel like it." I said, um, "Can I just give my statement and go, please? Because I, I can't be here." And he was like, no, no, he said, I need to speak to the other five guys first. He said, uh, we'll get you a coffee. He said, I'll speak to you last. So I was like, well, when's that? He said, it'll be about half one. Bear in mind, this is like half eight, quarter nine and one. He said, uh, don't worry, we're not going to send you out in a digger out. He said, just go and get yourself comfy. He said, and we'll, we'll, we'll be back. He said, I'll have someone check on you. So they sat me in an office and another supervisor walked by and like double looked and saw me sat there. And he walked in, he was like, what the fuck are you doing here? So I said, oh, they've told me I had to come in to give a statement. He said, yeah, I bet they have. He said, come on. He said, I'm taking you home, I can come to you. And then he helped me back into a, into a van and took me home. The following day, so the accident happened on the Tuesday. This was the Wednesday. On the Thursday, um, uh, the, well, it was the HSA guy, but also the boss of the like the client, he was like one of the main guys. He came out along with the principal contractor, um, one of their guys as a representative to interview me and take a statement. <laughs> so they did that. We went through everything, told them all the details. And then he said, right, Steve, he said, do you need anything from us? I was like, well, not, no, like not really. I said, oh, we'll be in touch. And then, the next day, they sent an occupational nurse to my, my home, one of their own nurses who they, they got out and said, she said, I've come to assess you because they want me to say you're going to be back at work on Monday, but I need to see you first. And she took one look at me and she said, Steve, you're going to be off work for months. She said, you're going to be off work for a long, long time. She said, like, I was sat there kind of like a pterodactyl. I couldn't move my arms and my thumbs was just all, I was kind of stuck. She said, you, you're going to need physio. She said, you, you're she said, I don't know if they realise what state you're in. Anyhow, she went away, told them, and then that was the last I heard of them for a while, for quite a bit. The, 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 and then at one point, I think after about five months, I was going to go back, and I said, look, I, I, I can come back to work. And they literally told me not to for another month, like work was quiet or whatever else, but not to go back. Um so I was off work for six months before I went back. And then bringing, jumping forward to when I set up SK Life Coach UK, I got in touch with a guy who interviewed me. And I said, I want to set up a business. I said, I'm mainly going to be helping coaching people one-to-one who are struggling with mental health. I just want to move forward with the life, want to achieve a bit more, want more confidence. I said, but as well as that, I'm looking at sharing my story, the, the accident, the lessons learned, how we can change and be safer in the future. I said, just simple things like competency and confidence, difference. And I was, I just literally put a bit of a presentation together. And he said, I said, but I needed some information to show on screen so people understood. And he said, Steve, I don't think we're going to want you to do that. He said, um, he said, leave it with me. I'll get back to you. But he said, I don't think, I don't think we want you to do it. And I was like, well, you can't stop me doing it. You know, like, I don't have to name no names of the contractor, the client, or anything else. It's just 
my story and the lessons that we can learn from from that story and also encouraging people to talk out what went to help. And he, um, he said, yeah, I'll get back to you. Anyhow, about three weeks later, I'd still not heard anything. I'd messaged him. I'd sent him emails. I'd, I'd, I'd tried everything, and he just he was not answering me. So a guy I was talking to said, why don't you write to the HSE for the Freedom of Information, and they'll give you the full investigation report. Now, I know there was a, a few agency lads working on that site when it happened, and there was a lot of people like the job got stopped obviously while I was investigating and the job got stopped and people got laid off and so in my mind it was all being properly investigated because I mean people was the job had stopped yeah the site had shut down yeah, yeah that, that part of the site had shut down that part of the job had stopped until the, the reinvestigate until the mm. investigations so I wrote to the HSC I explained who I was the day of the accident hospital appointment no like what time i got to the hospital everything and they got back in touch and said i'm sorry steve we don't know who you are we've got no record of you so i said well that's strange because i was off work for like six months and they said yeah um no uh we'll look into it a bit more but we'll we'll get back to you so i got off like with them and i emailed the client boss again and i said look really strange but how come the hse don't know who i am and then he, I've been trying to get in touch for three weeks. He rang me within two minutes and said, "You've spoke to the HSE." So I said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah." Fucking said, <laughs> "Yeah." He said, "You've spoke to the HSE." I said, "Yeah." I said, um, "Basically, I just want some information for a presentation." I said, "But they don't even know I am. They don't know nothing about it." He said, "Oh, right. Um, do you want to come on site and we'll explain to you how we reported it?" So I thought, "Well, yeah." Do you know like I, I, some explanation would be nice. Anyhow, goes on site because I still know a lot of people on the site. He didn't want me going into the site, so he went into this little room in the reception area, and they'd even brought their HSE representative back, their safety guy from about like twelve years ago. He, he recently retired, and I was expecting to see like a laptop or a folder or some kind of incident report to go through, like what had happened. And the boss sat there and he said, right, Steve, he said, um, basically, we didn't report it as a Rideau report incident because you didn't break any bones. Um, so I was like, right. I said, but I was off work for six months. He said, yeah, but you came on the next day. He was on site the next morning. And then the both kind of went really, really quiet. He said, so what we did, he said, we reported it as a dangerous occurrence. And he showed me this bit of paper and there was a little box on this bit of paper and it said site operative had been had suffered minor injuries during a pressure test failure. And that was it. That's basically all it said in that box. So I looked at it, looked at them too, and I said, Are you serious? I said, minor injuries. I said, even the pipe bedding that was stuck in me was but no was bad enough to try and scrub out and get out. I said, then stitches. I said, I had cortisol injections in my elbows for three months. I had physio. I, had, I suffered with my mental health. And you're telling me that that's minor injury. So he said, well, yeah, you didn't break no bones. So, and then I said, so if that was your son, your brother, a good friend, somebody else who was in that trench, and not just a number on a laptop as I was at that time, would that have been different? Would you have investigated it differently? And he could, they couldn't look at me. They both put their heads down. But looking back now, that's why 
They didn't call me an ambulance. They took me off site in, the, in their on site ambulance. Because if they'd have called me an ambulance, their, their on site ambulance wasn't permitted to go off site. So it could only work within the grounds. If they'd have called me an ambulance, then that ambulance driver would have let the police know or would have then informed the HSE. And then it would have all been investigated. So, in so your opinion, that from, from the get go, this is a cover from, up. From, from the get go, they, t- they spent ages even getting me off site and the, getting the attention I needed in the first place because all them big bosses <clears throat> was get, was all had to get together and have a conversation with regards to what they was going to do. They had to decide whether to get an ambulance or not. The um, thing as well, though, is like they're, they're, they're turning around and saying, oh, you didn't break any bones. But like I, I just Googled it just to double check to make sure I was correct. But I was like, it wouldn't even be the broken bones. It would For me, it falls into a specified injury where any loss of consciousness caused by head injury or asphyxia. So asphyxia would be yeah. drowned. You, you're in yeah. the water and you lost consciousness because everyone yeah. was saying, fucking wake up, wake up, wake up. That, that's what I mean. And all, the witnesses are all there. They've all said that. In, in the in the statement from when he's asked, I mean, it's I've got Jordan's statement, and it says exactly that. Steve was in and out of consciousness, you know, and it's and even if you even if you said, oh, we didn't quite go unconscious. For me, it falls into any other injury arising from working in an enclosed space with lead to hyper or requires resuscitation or admit admittance to hospital for more than twenty four hours. Yeah. So. It, Either way, you could say, well, you only went to hospital for a little bit, then you went home. For me, I, I think I, what, what I, I think one of the issues with one of the issues we have here is that there's a there's an all round avoidance to report riddle. Like we see it as a negative thing. Like oh, don't don't report riddle. Yeah, well, just how report. I see it, they had two point some million man hours about a lost time incident, and and this uh, is what I've spoke to. A, a top manager who was a manager at this company but on a different site okay. and I've met him he'd, he'd retired since but he was working at the time of that accident yeah. and I, I told him everything about it and it not being reported not getting me an ambulance yeah. and his, word, his words was from someone who's worked within the top end of that that business was Steve if they'd have reported it they'd have lost if you want to go on site the next morning, if they had to send someone to pick you up and bring you in, they'd have lost their millions of man hours. Now, if they're they losing millions of man hours, there's a few guys sat at the top of that tree, or at the end of that year, they'd have missed out on a big bonus. He said, and that's what it boils down to. He said, it comes down to KPIs and protecting stats and figures and safety records and all, all that aspect of it. He said, but that's what it boils down to is them guys wouldn't have got, wouldn't have got the end of year bonus. He said, I mean, even if it's not in a bonus, it's still very common for it to be in the contract. Yeah. He's, so he like, said, you've got a big, a big company contracted a medium company to a small company, you know, it'll, it'll say on there like no riddles. We, we won't yeah. renew the riddle. And and the thing is, like I preach when I do my presentation, I, I'll tell everyone, look, if something happens on site, report it yourself if you need to. You know, like, make sure there's a record to learn from. Three months after my accident, a guy on Skanska, a similar incident for Skanska, who I do a lot of work with, a guy died outright at pipe filling at three barrel pressure. Now, if my accident had been reported, and that's why I bring all this up in, in my presentation, not just about the blame on them for not, not reporting it, but 
if it hadn't been reported in the right way, then the HSC would have probably put out a newsletter or a briefing or something with regards to doing this type of work. Mm. And there'd be lessons learned from it, and they'd say, make sure you follow this procedure. Mm. If that had happened, there's a chance that guy three months later might not have done what he did. Yeah. But or the company had have stopped him doing what he was doing and putting full training to do it in the right way. It could have saved the life. So yeah. we we report things not because we're, we're grassing on people or summit or it's not about that. It's about learning yeah. from. It's about learning and improving. And if we don't, if we had summit and put it under the carpet, no one knows it happened. You're never going to learn from it. Yeah. And yeah. but Are you like the HSC. Uh, sorry, you went back to the HSE at, at this point, I believe. Yeah, that? I. Basically, that dangerous occurrence form had a, a number on the top. So I said goodbye to them to at the table and even had the cheek to say, hope all goes well, Stephen. We might we might book you for the next shutdown to come and talk to the guys. And I thought, it's never going to happen. Um, yeah, I went, and I, I went away and I spoke to the lady who I was dealing with about the HSE and I gave her this number off this dangerous occurrence and I explained they didn't report it as a video reportable accident, blah, 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 because they got me on site the next morning. Then I was off for six months. Hmm. Um, and I didn't break any bones, apparently. So she put this number in, and she said, no, they haven't even reported it as a dangerous occurrence. If if it had been reported, that would be on our system, and it's not. She said, basically, they've done that for in-house, to not kind of cover themselves in-house, so that number was um, their own internal spreadsheet or system? Yeah, it was some of their put, but it won't, if it had been reported, then the HSC would have had that. When they put that number in, that had to come up. And she said it hasn't been reported. So that's what happens now then. So she said, I'm going to pass you on to one of my colleagues. She then passed me, one of her colleagues got in touch, had a chat with her, and then she passed me on to someone even more senior within the, the HSC. And he rang me up and was talking, and he said, how long ago was this? So I said, 2011. He said, right. He said, I can't, I can't do enough. So I said, pardon. He said, can't do nothing about it. I said, what do you mean? He said, anything over seven years, we can't go back to. It's done. So I was like, so they've just get away with it like that. He said, yeah. He said, basically, he said, seven years, we can't, we can't do nothing. How, how does that make you feel now? Even though you're you're you know you're you're kind of matured and you've been you've gone through all this massive journey, this huge impact on your family. You've turned it into a, a good thing. You're helping people improve their lives off the back of it now. So you you've kind of reframed it reframed it as a very yeah. thing, but ultimately it was still a very negative event and it's had a lot of impact. Having having no kind of no ability to hold a business to account how does that make you feel for a long time well for the first few years i didn't really think about it i even went back and then i worked for a while i still worked on that site and all of these top guys who was part of that in-house investigation what they did and chose not to report it walking about in the suits and everything they all knew me someone's them walking down up the road they'd be like all right steve how's it going today how are you doing how are you doing before that, I, they wouldn't even look at me. Do you know what I mean? They'd, they'd go straight into their offices and that was it. I'd see them in the canteen and there was, they'd talk to me like, 
was my best friend. You know, like, I was training, going, are you able to lift weights yet? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And it, so it was only later when I kind of thought about doing SK Life for 2K and I looked back into it and I realised it wasn't reported. Then I just thought, I meant nothing, do you know what I mean? And it, But it, it was about me for a little bit. But then I started to think, like I've just said, how, how do we learn from it if they're going to keep it quiet, if, if it's not going to be reported? And then I kind of got more and more angry knowing that the five guys that I know was investigating it was the five guys that would have got a nice big bonus that year. And it was a, the, the company is a massive multi-billion pound company. I mean, we're not talking a, a small company. And they're now, all most of them, are working for different principal contractors all over the place. And they've just kind of gone on with their lives. And it's like, are you still doing it that way? Do you know what I mean? You, you, you're very high up within the company that you're in. Are you still choosing to just cover stuff up to protect safety records and protect your KPIs, basically, you knowing to keep everything looking right? Mm-hmm. Are you still doing that? It's, mm-hmm. it's not, and it, and it is one, but as far as anything, I, I'm a big believer in karma and what everything happens for a reason. Like, what I'm doing now, I'm passionate about, and I love it. And they're probably some of them are on my LinkedIn. I've made sure that they see it, and they're probably I'm a reminder to them all the time, having kind of what they did wrong. So hopefully, they see some of it and, and they've realised it and put it right and they've learned from it. Or eventually, some it will bite them on the ass and it will come back to them. In, and, in your and head, it was well and truly, in your opinion, with everything that you know. The power of hindsight was well and truly an intended an intended cover up. There wasn't a case of like those three or four people nah. involved in that kind of saw it a different way, or the information that they were getting was not what you see it as. It's not a difference of opinion. It's a purposeful cover up. Yeah, talk. I think I think the initial accident when the ambulance came out and everything else. I think initially they might have thought I'd just fallen in the trench and cracked me up. Don't know, mm-hmm. like. They didn't realise I was actually stood in front of that and it blew and then I was trapped and all the rest of it. So, like, for that part of it, I I, I think, but as that kind of escalated and there was people at the scene while I was in the ambulance in the medical centre, there's people who realised what had actually happened. There was a lot of conversations. Like I said, somebody had to decide not to get me an ambulance and to put me into a colleague's car. Somebody high up made that choice. I mean, it was whether it was on the principal contractor side or whether it was the client whose site it was. So somebody made that that choice not mm-hmm. to get me an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, "Right, we need to get him on site in the morning. Just turn up at his house." The shift site manager who was part of it was a client. Had already said on the way to the hospital, "Make sure you're both on site tomorrow." So mm-hmm. there, there was discussions about me being there and not having to be there. So it to me, and the more I look back now and I realise why they didn't get me an ambulance, speaking to this manager from a different site, and he said he should have known about it and it, it done, it was kept in house. Even after the incident, obviously people knew of it, but you'd have thought they'd have done a lot of toolboxes, toolbox talks and to, to learn from it. And it won't, it was just covered up. No one spoke about it again. So there wasn't the, the even con- really an in, a, a, a juicy internal investigation. There wasn't even anything like that. There was just a, no. 
kind of like, oh, I've got a little paper cut kind of. Yeah, you know. they, 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 had, they, had, they did look into it and they did retest that same amount, that same pipe, but they did it in a workshop condition. And it went up to pressure absolutely fine within no time as it would be expected to. But because on site, we didn't have the experience. We had one guy who reckoned had done it before. We didn't have the training. Over the over the over the Christmas break, it was in four meter lengths, and a few sections had, had risen as it had flooded. So that full area had flooded. A few sections had risen, and then there was air traps in there. And that's why when we come to pressurizing it, there was air traps in the pipe, other than just water, and. Also, the spigot end was uh, a compression fitting, so I had like a bead weld around it, slotted into a collar, and then that gets tightened up to a certain torque. Now, what had happened, the guy who tightened that up didn't realise it only had to be at a certain torque, and he did it as tight as he could get it. Over the torque. To, right, okay. So by doing it as tight as he could get it, it damaged the bead weld, what was keeping it in there. It weakened the bolts, the, the nuts and the bolts, and then with the added pressure of the air in there, that's what it all contributed to. How, how do we know all of that? So who who discovered all of that stuff that you just said? Is that just you guys, you and the people that you nope. know? No, while, while I was off, like I said, the, the redid, the retested it all. Right. And then that's that's what came out. That was the outcome in the end. They said, because of the, obviously they checked it before they moved it. If Basically, if that manager had come out at 10 bar and looked at that pipe, he'd have known that that had to be sat level. But it didn't come out. He stayed in his office and said, it's fine, carry on. Right. Um, so again, if he'd have come out, it never happened. Yeah. But, but he's considering what what bar are you at? You're nowhere near 38, which is what the manufacturer said this can go up to. Yeah. We're only going to 28, so this should never be a problem. He's not had he's not had the wider context of like you were saying, it had loads of air bubbles and yeah. so on. Yeah, he should have just come out. And, and that's my message when I'm doing a presentation and I talk to supervisors and team leaders and whatever else. It's anybody who comes up to you with anything, no matter what it is, get out there and see it from your own perspective. Don't just say, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. Because there's the famous last words out there, yeah, it'll be all right. Ah, it'll be all right. And it's not. If you're telling yourself, ah, it'll be all right, there's a chance it may not be. So yeah. check it. I mean, whether you get somebody else to look. Now, the, the contractor had been on that site for a number of years who I was working for. And because of that incident, they hadn't said outright because of that incident, but I've heard from other management while I was on there and people, they lost the contract on there, which was a multi-million pound contract. The guy who told us to carry on, he lost his job. So the repercussions, the ripple effect from that, that accident, as well as everything I'd gone through and whatnot, a lot of people got topied over when the new principal contractor came in. But a lot of people also was made redundant or lost lost the job as well. So it it, it was massive. Don't I mean one of the small it very much things. feels like the team on the day, that subcontractor or the 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 team that were on site were very much just kind of blamed for that and yeah, for it going wrong and moved on. Yeah. It was it was basically you shouldn't have ever got you shouldn't have gone in there. And it's like, well, yeah, again, hindsight's great, isn't it? We know we shouldn't have gone in there. But we was told by the competent person that that's what we needed to do. We'll stop the compressor, get in, tighten it up. And mm. That's how we've done it, and that's what he said you'd do. 
we'd gone back to the manager and explained that we was doing it that way. And he said, carry on, you'll be all right. So, yeah, hindsight, I should have never got in that trench. Neither should the Anthony and Jordan. But we did, and it went on. But that's where training and communication comes into it. If if we'd have been had any training in that, we wouldn't we would have done it the right way, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have gone near it. When it start, when it won't get up to pressure or it was leaking, we'd have stopped it, we'd have depressurized, we'd have checked everything and checked the levels and, and gone through the lot and then said, right, no, it's fine to go again now. But without that training, without that understanding, that knowledge, no matter how competent you feel as a person, if you haven't had that training, you're not a competent person. Mm. And that's that's where we was at. With with like the the way that a construction site safety is managed at the moment with cards and health and safety tests and site inductions, site plans, construction phase plans, loads of RAMs. For those that don't know, that's risk assessment and method statement. Yeah. Um, how? Kind of asked a similar question earlier, but like if you, if I was to say to you now, like you, you must still have friends and, and family maybe in the yeah. industry, like how confident would you be that your incident won't happen again within the next 10 years? Or do you think, no, that it, it no, that could, it, yeah, it, it could happen today, it could happen tomorrow easily, but in your opinion, like nothing through yeah. the change, no, but but the other thing, what it is, is yeah, we can put all these measures in place and regulations and procedures for safety. But human behaviour, as humans, we will still cut corners to save a bit of time or a bit of money. I mean, if we if we can get something done and we'll, we'll get finished early, then our brain just jumps in, right, yeah, we'll go, just do it, we'll do it this way. And we'll take risks. And I've seen it a million times on site myself and people get away with stuff. And then obviously I've been involved. You, so, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but but did you even think it was a risk? Like you say, you you cut corners and you take risks. But I, I feel like listening to you talk about it that at the time you didn't really. No, see it I didn't. Job, right? I, I didn't. I just thought I was doing my job. I didn't see it as a risk. I was told it was fine, and that's where a lot most. That's where accidents do happen. Obviously, like I've said, lack of training, lack of understanding. You, be, you believe you're doing something right. You believe you're safe. You believe so. Your barriers are up. You, you just do it, and that's kind. Of, that's what had happened. But at the same time, I have cut corners and I have took risks and I have not worn PPE and I have not waited until you've seen the audit team coming around and you're like, safety's here, quick, get your goggles on. You know what I mean? It's and that still happens today and it'll continue to happen. Do you know what I mean? And. But it's, it's like on that same site, you'd like to think that things have changed. We've got a different principal contractor. Um, we're a massive, massive company. They've been on there a number of years now. And you'd like to think the site worked differently. Whereas last year, back end of last year, my uncle is a scaffolding manager. And he's stood on the side of the road near his van. And the sun, or near his van. And there's a guy coming along in a mule in a manual working platform and yeah. the sun is in the, the sun's in this guy's eyes so he's bouncing along in his basket going along sun's in his eyes don't see my uncle stood there front wheel goes straight into the, the back of his legs literally from his, his boots like kind of pinned to the floor and then the wheel carries on and it starts kind of stretching his, his legs if you like because it's going into it 
Mm. My uncle, my uncle screams out, and the guy stops. And luckily, he stopped exactly when he did because uh, apparently millimeters more, he just snapped both legs. He like definitely. They they laid my uncle on the floor. They got the on-site ambulance, probably the same on-site ambulance what they had back then. <laughs> um, got him in it, checked him out, took him into the car park, put him into a colleague's car, sent him to a medical centre to get his legs scanned and X-ray. He got his legs scanned. The he, he had some small tears and bruising, but other than that, it was fine. Doctor said any more, it, it would have that a snap, but it was really really lucky. The next day, they sent somebody to his house picked him up, took him on site, wrote a statement as to what had happened, and then he got put on light duty for the next couple of weeks. So he just sat in an office and didn't have to do that. But again, nothing was reported. Nothing was, nobody else knew. And that was literally months ago. I mean, same site. My accident happened 12 years ago. So does it still happen? Yeah, 100%. And wow. and that's that's what's got to change. I mean, we... We can't just be putting we can't just be putting people on light duty when something's happened because again though to be honest if if you're changing someone's role and you're putting them on light duties and that's more seven days that's a fucking riddle anyway just yeah yeah why why they haven't still that it's still it's still a fucking riddle you you think that you're playing a game and you're fucking not Um, anyway um, you you probably kind of just said it but um, I'm I'm keen to kind of put you on the spot a little bit and like the the idea of rebranding safety is to kind of air stories like this and, uh, yeah. and kind of try to improve how, how we do just by driving more, exposing more conversations and situations and stuff. But if you were going to try, if you could change one thing right now, like you could click your fingers for health and safety at work, even if you want to like mental health at work or anything like that, what you could click your fingers and that would be sorted to, to perfection. Um, what one thing would you, would you pick? Because there's a million and one things. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. That's, why, that's why I put you on the spot. What would it be? Because I'm because there's so much in your story that we can pick out. Um, you know, the response from the legal compliance point of view, the response from a mor- the moral point of view, the managing of the risk of the accident, the planning of the the job, the PTSD, the the support, the mental health first aid, all of that stuff. There's so much in it, but. Uh, which one do you would you want to see change tomorrow? I think one thing that has to be changed, like, is obviously safety. Is, it is evolving and it is improving, and it has improved a lot over the years. And a lot of companies, who I, I speak for, like Scanska, Costain, some of the like some of the ones, they they are genuinely trying to implement the best procedures and, and do the right thing, and, and spending a lot of money on on safety. Um, but I think the one thing that we have to change, what companies do still do, is reward sites for not having incidents. So, I mean, off, they're offering some kind of incent, some kind of reward to keep a good safety record. And and you want to stop that? I want to stop that. By doing that, you're encouraging non-reporting because they're gonna, they're not going to get the reward. Or whether it's a financial reward, it doesn't matter what it is. Any kind, you, you don't reward somebody for for having a great safety record because that's just encouraging not to report any incidents whatsoever. And and what we have to do is we have to learn from it. even small incidents, even if a dumper topples over us and no one on it, don't I mean? Or 
a, a moxie dump truck, the back ends are designed to go over, but if they go over, it, it gets reported. We, we It goes in a system. We, we understand what's happening. Someone cuts a finger. I've, I know the story on LinkedIn of a guy who cut his finger at work, and it wasn't reported. A, a couple of weeks later, it got infected and he got sepsis, and he died because of a, a cut finger. Sure. And it, and his family, there was no, he couldn't, they couldn't prove that it was he'd done it at work. You know what I mean, and it's Fuck. it's it's as it's things like that. It's everything's got to be reported, but people don't report things because they don't want them on that on that safety record. Yeah, because because people are getting rewarded for having great safety, and yeah. it, I, I, and that again, it just encourages non-reporting. So. Yeah, you're preaching to a converted here, mate, 100%. <laughs> i conscious of time. It's been amazing to have you tell your story. Uh, I think it's a it's a horrific story to tell, and a very but a very powerful one, and hopefully hopefully we can um, have more people listen to it and um, yeah, uh, drive some change. But if people want to get touch with you, mate, they want to just tell us some more about what you do and how people can get in touch with you, and uh, just do yourself a little plug for your business. Stop. So if you're looking for one-to-one coaching, whether that be hypnotherapy or just like confidence, you want to move further in your career, public speaking, you're nervous or all that type of stuff, then obviously the coaching side of it, message me through my website, which is www.sklifecoachuk.com. You can follow me on all social media. Again, sklifecoachuk, which is just Steve Kerber, lifecoachuk. And LinkedIn, which is, again, if you Google SK Life Coach UK, I'm across there. As far as the story, I shared a presentation all over the UK or Ireland. I've been flown out. I'll, I'll go anywhere basically to tell the story because um, I know the importance of the lessons that are there to learn from. And it's it doesn't matter what sector we're in, whether it's office staff, whether it's construction, whether it's demolition, whether it's factory, whether it it doesn't my accidents can happen on any site and it's all down to to us as people do you know what I mean? it's, and the situations will put people so if if you're looking for a speaker to come and sh- share a story which is as you've heard here quite hard hitting um relatable but does 100 percent make a difference then again just reach out any of my social medias on my website drop me a message and i will come and speak to the teams Amazing. Oh. Thank you very much, Steve, for coming on and uh, and sharing your story, bud. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, I've enjoyed it. And again, talking about it a few years ago, I'd be a nervous wreck. Even when I first ever started talking and doing, like sharing it, I, for some of them companies in the beginning, I bet the thought, what are we paying for? Because I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd get all shaky and sweaty. And, and, and you, obviously, I'm reliving it. So it brings back a lot of emotion and a lot of but I think where I'm where I'm at now, and and where I'm at as a coach and as, as a person in dealing with some stuff like that, it's I am in a lot better place. So uh, yeah, I enjoy sharing because I know even if one person out there is listening and struggling with a mental health or stressed or, and now they're going to reach out. If I hadn't reached out eventually, if I hadn't ran that doctor, I wouldn't be here no more. I would have found the com- I would have found the strength to to end it because that's all all I could think about day after day after day but I did reach out and now I'm in a totally different life I mean my life is completely different and I've never been I don't have a negative 
for I mean, I've trained myself everything's positive whatever we go through if something bad happens in the day you take a lesson from it and you you move you move on you learn from it but every moment where here is a blessing because it can be taken at any point and and that's why I do what I do and that's why I think why I think that so I if anyone watching, yeah, if anyone watching it is struggling please reach out contact me contact anybody all the rest of the people keep an eye on Colleagues, loved ones, family, friends. If someone looks quiet, ask them if they're all right a couple of times. Keep on at them. And again, anybody needs a speaker, give me a shout. But thank you for having me on. And it's been it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you on, mate. Thank you very much. expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank you.